I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We've got something different for you today and we're very excited. Uh, we've got Jem Duduku with us, who is a populist historian and author. He's got a new book out called Slinkies and Snake Bombs, which is basically a weird history of everything. It's a great idea, clearly, because <laughs> Jem, this is essentially volume two, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. So uh, just sort of behind the scenes. Stuff. Hello. Hello, everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Typical so, yeah, so, historian. It's like, yeah, yeah, forget about me. Let me start talking. <laughs> <laughs> I've got stuff to say that we're all like it. We're fine. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're amongst, amongst friends. friends. Yes. Yeah. So be gentle <laughs> with me. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, so this is through Amberley Publishing. And uh, I actually did about five years ago another collection of just weird historical facts. And it was called Forgotten History. So this book was originally called Forgotten History Volume 2. And the marketing department said, oh, for the love of God, don't call it Volume 2. Because then everyone thinks they have to have read Volume 1 and it halves the sales <laughs> instantly. So don't do that. <laughs> yeah. and, and Nobody so, ever buys the second volume of anything, apparently. No, no. Uh, there are some people out there who've read, you know, multi-volume versions of World War Two and don't even know how it ends. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, don't tell James Holland that. It's a piece of life's work. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, what both these books are is it's just a random collection of stuff. And, and in the introduction of, of this one, I, I make the point that there are, there are certain peaks in history. You know, if you if you want to get published, write a book on the Tudors or write a book on the Romans or write a book on World War Two. And there's just enough of an automatic uh, area of interest there that you'll probably get published. But it leads to these. And I use the word ghettos of centuries of, of, of stories that just never sort of reach popular consciousness. And they're, they're interesting. So, you know, there are, there are leaders that never really get talked about. And within all of these things, even in, in the famous eras, there are these just sort of like weird and wonderful stories, which are a footnote in a normal book. But that's the bit to me where it's like, ooh, there's something more interesting going on there. And Amen then I dig, dig them out and put them together. So really yeah. both books, the only thing, you know, I can jump from the Aztecs to, I don't know, uh, Imperial France to, you know, uh, ancient China. I mean, they are in a rough chronological order. That's yeah. about the only sort of link between them. But, the, you know, there is no through line whatsoever. And you can, I actually had one friend of mine say, it is perfect bathroom reading. That's what, what I was mean? just about to say to you without trying to insult you with this. <laughs> 
is a great <laughs> one to have in the toilet for a bloke, isn't it? Because like, it's, it's yeah, just yeah. as well. Because you can open it on any page. And it's like, oh, what's this story here? Yeah. You know, you, you can start on page 72 and then work your way back to page one if you want to. You know, you yeah. do it whatever way you want. I'm going to admit something now, and that's the the group we have. For the, we have a WhatsApp group for down the pub to sort of plan the episodes and everything. And as a joke, it's named after the four things that you're guaranteed if you put them in a title, everyone will download the podcast. So the group is called the Titanic Nazi Sex Tudors. <laughs> <clears throat> because if you put any one of those four things in the title of a podcast or a book, you are guaranteed a deluge of people wanting to look at it. It's mad. I've got I've got three out of those in the book. Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm not doing bad. So, sorry to the Titanic fans. Nothing there. But there is Tudor era stuff. Uh, there is sex. Indeed, one of the one of the early articles. So um, uh, from a very much an anthropological view, I'm very proud of this, that, um, you know, I'm trying to pull out as many women as possible. Now, it's not like, you know, the 100 greatest women in history. It's, it's not that yeah. but there are a lot of women in there. Let's face it. You're slightly more than 50 percent of the global population. We yeah. should talk about you guys. But an early uh, an early one is about um uh pregnancy and uh, menstruation yeah uh, so this is the thing like meryn's given me a bullet list yeah go on. she wants me to talk about right and one of them is the ancient history one and she's put circumcision periods and ponytails <laughs> that's not yeah, all one they're, is it? they're not all in the same yeah. one for the record uh yeah it's, but it's this quite... is the anthropological thing you were talking about that you've actually although this is a fun book you've actually tried to say hey look this is stuff that's actually really interesting and you should know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, thank you very much for that. Um, you know, th there are a fair few that are sort of like comical because there are moments in history where it almost reads like farce. Um, I, I, if I may, I'll, later on, I'll, I'll, I'll read out the, my, my all time favourite in the whole book uh, called The Three Dimitris. But anyway, but yes. So in regards to these early ones. Um, uh, yeah. So there's one which actually links unsurprisingly, um, menstruation and pregnancy. And the ancient Egyptians had a pregnancy test that was 70 percent effective. Uh, you know, that, that's, really? that's yeah, it's really impressive. Basically, a woman who thought she was pregnant would have to pee on barley seeds. And basically the uh, 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 FCH, uh, which is the growth hormone in, in women when they are pregnant, it's the same thing that's used in modern pregnancy tests. But basically it's, it's a super grow chemical. So if you peed on the barley in two days later, if there were sort of like shoots from the barley seeds, you're pregnant. And it was 70 percent. Uh, accurate but the the one that it led me down uh, look I'm aware I'm a guy talking about this mm. but um you know where you get to the world of uh, menstruation and it's estimated that a a modern woman in the western world uh will probably have over 420 uh sort of periods in her uh, in her adult life oh, and thanks you, for that it, it, well here's the thing you go <laughs> back to adding that up for us <laughs> Yeah. So there's the women suffering and there's the guy there with the calculator. I'm sorry, Alex. Yeah. OK. <laughs> um, but, you know, what stunned me is if you go back to sort of like the hunter gatherer eras, it's estimated that women would have about 50 periods in their life. I mean, that's a shockingly different amount of, of things. And yet it's the same human body. And, and the reason for this was obviously 
shorter life cycles is part yeah, but of it. they're working hard aren't they is that stress related and it, it's actually down to you you don't menstruate you, you you don't tend to menstruate when you're uh pregnant or when you're i mean it's not impossible but it's far less likely when you're pregnant or indeed in the first six months after birth and indeed in while you're breastfeeding and uh, nowadays breastfeeding tends to last about six months but going all the way back it was uh three years uh was mm-hmm. the average so when you start adding all this up there might might have been several years where a woman had no uh, uh, no menstrual cycle whatsoever, and the theory is, and of course this is anthropological. There isn't, you know, nobody was writing yeah, it yeah. down, you know, during the Paleolithic. Um, but the theory might have been that when you did have a, a period, it was a sign that you were ready to go again in, in terms of having uh, having another child. But even uh, even a hundred years ago, it's estimated that our great grandmothers were probably only having about a hundred periods uh, in their in their lifetime. So that is a colossal change, and you know. I'm a, uh, I, I've got a wife, I've got two kids and, you know, just seeing my wife suffer like every four weeks, it's like, man, you know, it's just, so, she, she said occasionally, it is so unfair being a woman. And I, yeah. I feel for on that. I, I've got no, I've got no point of reference from my perspective. Men obviously don't have anything like that, but um, you know, it, it just, it's just fascinating to me how different it was being a woman 5,000 years ago to, to what it is today. Do you know as well um, that I heard this one, and this kind of creeps me out, but it's kind of sweet in a way, which is that girls, your maternal grandmother will never, ever, ever leave you because there's something, and this is uh, Alex the Scientist, we need Kit here because I'm shit at this, Uh, Alex the Scientist telling you that basically the way uh, forming a human body works and that you've got your maternal grandmother's um, cells inside uh it's your egg that you are yes so um you will never ever ever lose your maternal grandmother which if you don't like beautiful but i loved my maternal grandmother and she will never ever leave me because there's a part of her inside me which it's not i don't i think that's quite sweet i i yeah it's yeah this is the stuff where and this is something else i make in the comment in the introduction that you know, why I love history is because you couldn't make it up. There are some moments, you know, there are facts like that that are so beautiful, it sounds like it's metaphysical poetry. And no, it's just a fact of life. Or there are other moments where it's like, if you wrote that in a novel, it'd be like, oh, come on, that is a ridiculous coincidence. But sometimes ridiculous coincidences actually happened and changed world history at certain points. Yeah, it's like when people are writing crime novels and everyone goes, oh, that's stupid. That's not going to happen. It's like, actually, no, statistically, coincidences solve a lot of crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, let's move on to because now all the men have turned off going oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well, so we're gonna go to circumcision that'll keep them tuned in the rain one i like this one the longest deluge in history for anyone oh. that pisses and moans about the weather during yeah, yeah 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 so i uh hang on i, I i'll uh, i'll quickly uh, i'll skip to the bit where because i have to sort of get it right yeah, um, so that, it is called <laughs> the Carnian Pluvial Event. So this happened 230 million years ago, and it rained so much for so long, it's in the geological record. So that means it has to, had to have rained a significant amount of time. And the answer is, bearing in mind, you know, Noah, 40 days, 40 nights, and that led to the flooding of planet Earth, if you mm. want to believe for such things. But this was 2 million years of rainfall. I mean, that is, again... 
sounds completely made up. But if you ask a geologist, they'll be able to talk about the Carnian pluvial event and go, no, it's 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 absolutely there. And and it and what's interesting is it it some of the and it led to a mass extinction, a massive change of um, you know the evolutionary cycle on the planet. And after this event, you start getting the very first uh, signs of, of what would become dinosaurs. But interestingly, there was a large amount of um, of aquatic marine life that died out there. Now that's weird because they're not going to drown in water, but um, one of the theories is it might've changed like the pH levels of certain okay, seas, which yeah. could, have, could have changed things. I don't go into the chemistry so much in the book. And, and like most, most little stories are like two pages long, three pages long. So you're never that far away. If this one doesn't float your boat, there's another one, you know, a few pages later where it's like, okay, I like this one. It's about battles or it's about Kings or it's about, you know, we're, women's lady problems or whatever it may lady be. Lady things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, let's move on a bit in time. Um, Go on. <clears throat> you've mentioned, oh, let's do it. Let's do the three Demetrius. Is this the one that ends yeah, up the with the cannon? Because I love this story. It is actually the most hilarious thing ever. Tell everyone about the so, three So if I may, can I read it out just so I get a, get it all, all right? You is have to okay? because you need, you need it. And I'm not even, I won't say the punchline before you get to the end because <laughs> it's brilliant. Okay, fair enough. So, in Russian history, the era from 1598 to 1613 is called the Time of Troubles. It was a disastrous period in the expanding country as the triple threats presented by a lack of central authority, famine, and an invasion by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that was a genuine military power in the West, uh, sort of like in the sort of like uh, the Renaissance era and later, uh, led to a near collapse of the Russian state. Millions died of starvation and violence, but there was such a bizarre grab for power that it makes the politics of the age look like a farce. I mean, so this is the thing. I'm, I'm not going to be... Look, I love horrible histories, but, you know, there are times when they so trivialize things. It's like, I know it's for kids, but, you know, you do have to point out the tough stuff as well. It's like the horrible histories movie, which is fine. It's fun. It's a good way to show the kids. But at the end, you've got the Romans and the Britons dancing with each other rather than the Romans massacring the Britons. Yeah. But yeah. So look, I'll tell it like it is. You know, this is a period which was horrible. You would never want to have lived in this era in, in Russia. But with that said, what was happening at the top of the heap was just was written like a farce, basically. So you get Tsar Fyodor, uh, he was a weak ruler, possibly mentally disabled, and had no heir. He was the son of Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, as we all know. Uh, who who was had uh, accidentally murdered the proper heir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, but it was, it was Ivan who actually created the concept of Tsar, which is the Russian word for Caesar. Uh, and uh, yeah, he named himself Tsar in 1547. So when Fyodor died without an heir in 1598, his death triggered a dynastic catastrophe. The concept of a Tsar was barely 50 years old, and now the country was being invaded by aggressive foreign powers. So this really could have led to an end of Russia. I mean, you know, there are lots of countries that existed in the past that don't exist today, like Prussia or Bohemia. You know, it, it wasn't a given that any country was going to keep going. So anyway, uh, which brings us to the first false Dmitri. The Dimitri, uh, this Dimitri claimed he was the youngest son of Ivan the Terrible, which would make him the brother of Theodore and the rightful heir to the throne if he was genuine, even though everyone thought that the real Dmitri was dead because he was. Uh, the, ma the man gained the support of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, formed a small army and advanced into Russia in 1605. As he marched, his forces grew, although he did have to fight a few minor battles along the way. Fortunately for him, uh, they were minor affairs, and it seems that he was considered the natural heir to the throne and had bolstered his credentials by showing the strength to lead an army. 
This Dmitri arrived in Moscow in the summer of 1605, where he was crowned Tsar by the new Muscovite patriarch of his own choosing. So, you know, he gets to pick the guy who crowns him and makes him legit. That's always helpful. He married Marina Minezech in May 1606, but for various reasons, she did not convert to Russian Orthodox Christianity which helped spread the rumors that he was a secret Catholic who had made a pact with the Pope to reunite the churches. None of this was true, but it didn't stop an angry mob from attacking the Kremlin. Tsar Dmitri tried to flee by jumping out of a window, but fractured his leg in the fall. When he tried to hide in a nearby bathhouse, he was recognized, dragged through the streets and apparently beaten to death. There are conflicting reports, but he was definitely killed. His body was put on display and then cremated with the ashes allegedly shot from a cannon towards Poland, the direction whence he had come from with a foreign army. This was <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, just, back. A, just a real full stop to it all there. Yeah. Um, uh, and this was followed by a massacre of his supporters. So far, so interesting, but not very weird until Dmitri II arrives. The second false Dmitri turned up about a year later, again at the head of a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth army, claiming to be the same Dmitri who'd been beaten to death, burnt and shot out of a cannon. This was quite a claim, made all the harder to justify when he was taken to his widow. On seeing this new Dmitri, Marina claimed it was a holy miracle that he had survived and that he was undeniably the same man who had died the previous year. This Dmitri did a bit better than the first one and lasted until December 1610 when, in a drunken stupor, he was shot and beheaded by a Tartar prince who had been nursing a grudge, having been flogged on Dmitri II's orders. Another man took his chance in March the following year, 1611. This was the third and final false Dmitri, who again was no such thing and seems to have been a disgruntled deacon of the church. Uh, this Dmitri did not seek the support of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but instead threw his lot in with the Cossacks, who had been the backbone of the Tsar's paramilitary power. It was a shrewd move. They went on to plunder the surrounding areas of Moscow, and Dmitri III was formally recognized as the legitimate heir a year later in March of 1612. However, just a few months later, everything went wrong for him when he was deserted by his allies, captured by his political enemies, and executed without ceremony. It was Michael I who finally put an end to all the chaos and confusion when he came to power in 1613. He was the first Romanov Tsar, the founder of a dynasty that would last for over 300 years. So yeah, that, 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 that's my favorite up, one because it? yeah, it it it, it sound, you could you could do that bit uh, you could do that as a serious movie or you could do it as like a carry on film. You could. It's brilliant. Uh, let's do because <laughs> what has Merrin talking about when she's put on this list? Pornocracy. <laughs> In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The we Roman are going to get sex Nazis and Tudors into this. Yeah, yeah. The Roman <laughs> pornocracy is, is uh, sorry, the, pa the papal pornocracy. Um, hang, hang on, hang on. I, I, I see this is the problem uh, on some of my other books. Like, you know, I'm a specialist on, on things like the Crusades and the Ottoman Empire. That's where I sort of get my name from. Yeah. And uh, 
So, yeah, I know what you're going to ask about that. But the problem with this one, of course, is uh, you could be asking me anything about any uh, about any era. And, and so that can be the, the, the problem. So, um, oh, hang on. I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. So uh, <laughs> it's a, the actual title of this fact is the Roman pornocracy. Bet that got your attention. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, everyone likes a little bit of uh, uh, yeah, fun. I'm going to say euphemistically. In papal history, the 60 years spanning from 904 to 964 has been referred to as the Roman pornocracy. Uh, Roman Catholicism uses the Latin term seculum obscurum or the Dark Age. So uh, the, the first person to suggest grouping the popes of this period together was not an atheist or a Protestant, but a Renaissance cardinal called uh, Cesar Baronius. Uh, the popes of this time were weak, there was one pope by the name of Lando, but the only famous Lando is from Star Wars, not papal history. Yeah. And were inevitably, I mean, Lando, I never it's even not, knew it. It doesn't was. command papal authority, does it? No, not really. Uh, and in, uh, invariably, though, they were the puppets of the rich and powerful and completely corrupt Theophylact family, which is another great name. Mm. Uh, it's also important to point out that the Vatican wasn't then quite like the later medieval one. To understand its position, uh, we have to go back to the early Roman church. Matthew 16, 18, see, okay bit of, of, the, uh, of the Bible in here, famously quotes Jesus as saying, and I tell to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Because of this pronouncement, Saint Peter the Apostle and one of the 12 disciples is often seen as the first Pope. But the reality is that the first few centuries of popes have more to do with legends than historical facts. Once you get Emperor Constantine, pretty quickly it evolved into five centers of Christian power, each with a church leader known as a patriarch. Those five areas were Jerusalem, obviously that's the big one, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople and Rome. At first, Jerusalem had the advantage being the site of the holiest places. But in the seventh century, it fell with Alexandria to the new Muslim empire. And so their position of religious importance waned. Antioch later got also conquered. And so we get to Constantinople and Rome vying for supremacy. The Roman patriarch became known as the father of the church, which uh, so was nicknamed Papa, which is where we get the word Pope from. It was mm. never originally an official title. But the patriarchs of Constantinople and Rome would continue to be at each other's throats until the formal split in 1054. So this is a century before any of that that happened. So they are still technically uh, united. With all of this in mind, the position of the Roman popes as the supreme authority in the churches in the 900s was not to be taken for granted. And while they craved that level of, of uh, recognition, duplicitous nobles could play power politics as everyone jostled for position, and the popes of this era were bad. They were often implicated in less than holy endeavors and frequently had lovers, to put it politely. Pope John X was deposed, imprisoned, and finally murdered. Pope Stephen VIII was imprisoned, tortured, and maimed. There was about a dozen popes in this period, some lasting just months. The final one, Benedict V, was deposed after just one month in office. The person at the center of this was Marazia, a woman who was born into the wealthy and, the wealthy and influential Theophylact family and who would become the mother of many of the key players. Her mother was Theodora, herself a master manipulator who used her power and riches to control the papacy for personal interest. Piety had nothing to do with any of it, and the popes of this time were, without exception, corrupt, short-lived, and ineffectual. Of course, the concept of a hereditary pope is an oxymoron, a big no-no, and a sign of how corrupt the church had become. 
uh, when Theodora paved the way for her 15-year-old daughter, Marozia, to become the mistress of Pope Sergius III. A few years later, in order to counter the influence of Pope John X, who, had been, who may have been another one of Marozia's lovers, Marozia married his political opponent, Guy of Tuscany, who apparently loved power as much as she did. Together, they attacked Rome, arrested John, and incarcerated him in Castle Sant'Angelo. The stakes increased when he died in 928, perhaps from neglect or Ill, Ill treatment, or possibly because Guy had him strangled. We just don't know. Uh, Marozia seized power in, the, in Rome. The following popes, Leo VI and Stephen VII, were both puppets who didn't last long. In 931, she imposed her son as Pope John XI, who was only 21 at the time and had precisely no interest in carrying out the Lord's work. This was a period of papal history which is best forgotten, but it was also a time when Italy was under serious pressure from Arab raiders and pirates. And while the papacy regularly called for assistance to stop the threat, nothing came from it because of their obvious poor leadership. As an example of the neglect and confusion that marked the papacy at this time, considered Popes Marnius and Martinus. Because of the similarity of their names, Pope Marnius and Marnius II were in some sources mistakenly given the name Martinus and then were respectively numbers two and three. So we've got the wrong names, wrong dates, wrong titles. It's because nobody cared. This is how irrelevant the papacy <laughs> had become for this period. So when we talk about how many, I'm sort of going off the thing here, but when we talk about how everybody was super religious in the Middle Ages, they sort of were and sort of weren't. And even then, everybody knew what a good and bad pope was. And these yeah. guys were just the worst. Um, uh, so in 1281, when we get a new pope, uh, they take the name Martin. He became Pope Martin IV, when in fact he should have been Martin II. Got that? Um, when her husband died in 929, Marozia uh, negotiated a marriage with his half-brother, which is technically incest in the Middle Ages, Hugh of Arles, who had been uh, rather handily elected King of Italy. Uh, there was the little problem that Hugh already had a wife, but he had that marriage annulled so that he and Marozia could be married. It was an eventful wedding. Albrecht II, another of Marozia's sons, was opposed to the rule of Marozia and Hugh, so he imprisoned his mother and, at the wedding and kept her confined until her death. Meanwhile, Hugh escaped and appears to have made no attempt to save his bride. Marozia remained in prison for five years and seems to have died of natural causes. It could have been neglect, but prison for an aristocrat was rarely a bare cell in chains. So the papacy at this time constituted just another everyday story of power, corruption, and supposedly noble people acting in less than noble ways. It wasn't until 965 that things began to change with Pope John XIII, who showed signs of independence and proved unwilling to blindly back the Theophilat family. The term pornocracy arose because both Theodora and Marozia, mother and daughter, were the mistresses of two popes at least and the alleged mothers of a few more. So it might not just have been sixth century Italian nobles who inspired games of thrones. Uh, who said church history is boring? Yeah. There we go it's on that insanity, one. insanity, isn't it? Yeah. But Pretty again, fun. you know, you can see that's a good TV series. So why do we keep making, you know, the wives of Henry VIII over and over and over again? Now, don't get me wrong. I've got, you know, Henry VIII was an important person in, in British history, I guess, European history as well. And, you know, how he abused his wives is a terrible story. But it's been told so many times, I would argue it's time for some other stories to be told. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And yet, in your book, um, and I'm fully on board with this, people still believe a whole load of tripe about Henry VIII, don't they? Because uh, surely he hated all Catholics, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he, he really hated all. Ca- I mean, yeah, that, do you know what? That that's something else that um, uh, I, I put in a, a line in a previous book, which is uh, the problem with history is we look at it the wrong way round. Everybody knows what I mean. So, for example, as a kid, um, I, I was learning World War Two, and one of the first things they tell you is who won. And so you, you know, as a kid, you think, well, why did Hitler bother getting out of bed? He was always going to lose. But mm. that's not how time works. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And sometimes really, we- I mean, look, let's face it. If you, if Alex, you and I were having this conversation in the beginning of 2019, and I said, do you know what? In a year's time, we're going to be locked up at home. We're not going to be allowed to go to work. Um, we're going to run out of toilet paper. Everybody's going to understand uh, uh, our infection rates of coronaviruses. And uh, people would... are going to be running to Anne Summers to buy penis pasta. <laughs> you <laughs> would turn around to me and say, that is ridiculous, Jim. Because, you, you know, you know it, yeah. So I think COVID, in a way, is a great way of reminding us how people in the past didn't know what was going to happen next. And so, you know, in the case of Henry VIII, you know, he um, one of the things that people forget about him is he's the first um, uh, British monarch who wrote a book and got it. Pub- now, we can of course, it was going to be well received because people are not going to turn around to the king. going, You can't write. But, you know, no previous king had ever or queen had ever sort of sat down and written an entire book. And he laughed that by other kings and queens, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was um, he was. Um, Yes, but what you were alluding to earlier is, uh, you know, he wrote a treatise uh, defending the Catholic faith, uh, faith against... He did. He was ass-kissing the Pope with his yeah, book, wasn't yeah. he? And he got the title from the Pope, Defender of the Faith, which a lot of people think is was naturally because he became the head of the, you know, the English Protestantism, the Church of England, that he that's when he got, he made up that title himself. But no, he was given to it as for being a good Catholic boy. Mm. Indeed, he was. Right, let's move on to the early modern era then. That's where we've gone. Go uh, on. Karen's put this in here just to piss me off. I know she has. Bananas, because I hate them. <laughs> Make me gag. Um, okay, so I now have to try and uh, I now have to try and find this one. So uh hang on, there's uh um so yeah, so look, I, I do several bits on botany um because yeah. it's it's remarkable at, at how much plants have changed uh, the world around us and how imperial plants have been as well. But basically the, you know, in the world of bananas, uh, for starters, they're uh, from the plantain family. Uh, So it's like, oh, I've heard of plantains. Isn't that what they kind of eat in the Caribbean? Yeah, they're particularly popular there. They actually seem to have started um, out in Asia and just, you know, in prehistory before humans even existed, just sort of spread around the world. So Mm -hmm. we are talking about thousands and thousands of years old. Hardly any of them are yellow. um, And most of them are, you know, would taste, have the same taste range as a potato. 
but the sort of sweetness was through specific breeding of these plantains. So the yellow banana that we all eat now has a name and it's the Cavendish banana. It is an imperial crossbreeding invention of the 19th century. And so you could argue that whenever you eat a banana, you're basically eating a British invention because it's completely artificial. It did not exist in, in, in as part of mother nature. But you, you know, some of the other things around sort of botany, the critical thing was an invention of something called the Wardian case. So this is basically a cross between a glass house and a suitcase. So it's this little tiny portable glass house. Mm. Now, of course, you can take seeds and take them somewhere else. But if they're just seeds, that's the hardest thing to grow. You don't know the pH value of the soils. You don't know how moist it needs to be kept, et cetera, et cetera. Trying to take, bring something from seed to full grown plant is really hard. What you need is saplings, little tiny plants, but they don't last very long unless you've got a Wardian case. So this, the invention of this led to a weird craze of um, everybody in, in uh, uh, sort of like London aristocracy during the sort of Victorian era, walking around with Wardian cases with orchids in them going, oh, look at mine, mine's particularly rare. But on a very practical case, um, it led to tea coming to India. Because China had, you know, you've heard the, heard the phrase, I wouldn't do it for all the tea in China, because yeah. tea comes from China. And because China wouldn't play ball, Britain basically got a load of sapl uh, you know, uh, sap sapling sam samples in Wardian cases, shipped them over to Imperial uh, India and started producing tea in, you know, unfathomable, you know, most people think tea comes from, from India as well. It's a plant common to both uh, countries. It isn't. It was brought there. In, if you like, it's one of these complicated bits which shows you that, Imperial history isn't just, you know, pillaging race, uh, racism and massacres kind of thing. There are also sort of weird offshoots that people don't like to talk about. And, you know, it's like if, if, if India wants to say we're going to throw away all of British history, all of imperial influence, well, mm -hmm. they've got to throw away all, you know, the billions they make every year from tea production from these plantations that were originally British. And the other one is rubber as well. Uh, you know, uh, during the Industrial Revolution, rubber was an incredibly important plant. So rubber, again, rubber plantations started cropping up all across the the uh, the British Empire but they these again these saplings were actually brought from um, I'm saying this off the top of my head because I don't have the, this bit in the book in front of me right now I think it was it's uh, okay we've had a whole thing with Kit with Kit our science historian on the history of rubber so they can go and listen to that if there we go history of rubber but yeah all there. How it basically ruined countries, but yeah. indeed, indeed. So, so yeah. So you know, you've got the sort of like the moving around of plants. It's you know, this is not the most exciting, sexy part of history. Yeah, we, we've already done sexy times and some yeah. of our other <laughs> peoples, but you can see how important. So you know, try living your life with. I mean, bananas is pretty easy, and Alex, you do clearly live your life without bananas. But try <laughs> living your life without rubber. Uh, you yeah. know, it, it insulates uh, electrical cabling. You've got it on the tires of your car. You know, it, it's a it's a plant product that has revolutionized the world. Not, <laughs> not for good. As far, do you know what my mum says? Apparently, I used to, when I was a baby, she used to feed them to me like all the other mums and all the other babies would eat the bananas and I would spit them at her. So it's it's a it's a lifelong thing. Uh, right. OK. Merrin says on her notes, that according to you, the early modern era, already had mail order brides. Are we talking Anne of Cleves here? Or are we talking something else? 
No, 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 no. That, this was lovely. Um, I, so I, um, yeah. So when I was looking at uh, sort of uh, mail order brides, because uh, because I was thinking about well, first of all, <laughs> I love, when I was looking at mail order brides, I love that. Not for yourself. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I have to be careful, with that, yeah. darling. I love you, Liz. You are my one and only. In fact, the yeah. book is dedicated to L um, twelve. <laughs> which when was, when you uh, were looking at mail order brides as part of your research, research, yes. Because yeah. first of all, I wanted to find out. You know, nowadays is, you know, you, you hear about these mail order brides. Are they a real thing? You know, so um, so so that made me sort of like, you know, is this sort of like an urban legend? And it's unfortunately, I can tell you, no, it isn't. But it no, then no, got, three years with the home office, my friend, it's not. It's terrifying. Yes. So. <laughs> Um, so I started looking into a little bit further. And so, um, uh, so, so yeah, so, uh, you know, just sort of jumping into this one, um, Britain had a version of a mail order bride consisting of Lonely Hearts adverts in local newspapers from as early as the 1690s. Uh, they only had limited success because at the time a significant part of the population was illiterate. However, the need to advertise for companionship evolved to a whole new level in the second half of the 1800s in America, when the appeal was not meant for women from other countries, but for for American women. Two key events in the 19th century created the need. A steady increase in literacy made it possible in the first place. And the, the first event was the expansion of the American West. This part of the country was lawless and dangerous, so far more single men than families headed west to establish a homestead and or seek their fortunes. Uh, there were constant threats, threats including possible attacks by Native Americans, wild animals, and those who might challenge your claim or rob you of your wealth. The men who struck out, uh, struck out on this lonely life were surrounded almost exclusively by other men. The only single women were those who worked in the local bars and saloons. So there was not a lot of choice for an honest, hardworking lad from West Virginia. The second event was the US Civil War in which 2% of the population of the country died, the vast majority obviously being men. This may not sound a lot, but the result was a shortage of men in a country where, uh, uh, where there were literally thousands of women who wanted to marry. So there's less men to begin with, and then a significant chunk of those young marriageable men are heading west to you know, mine for gold or set, set up ranches. Um, uh, so, uh, so basically these men were out of reach. So adverts began to appear in newspapers back east. Here's an example from the Times. Uh, bachelor, age 42, considered good looking and affectionate, wishes to marry a suitable spinster or widow of Christian principles. Now, th th this is not Tinder. This is not like, hey, who wants a one night stand or something? This is a man who is looking for a relationship and looking for a woman of, you know, basically noble principles. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, looking basically for marriage and a family. Ultimately, interestingly, religion was important enough to get a mention in the normal course of events. Correspondence would follow. Some of the letters were uh, surprisingly intimate and the photos were exchanged. Everyone obviously looking at their best. Pretty much most of the photos of the wild west in inverted commas are these men sending photos back either to their families to say look how affluent we are or to these ladies saying please marry me and so you, they don't look anything like they would in their day-to-day -day. so actually yeah. most <laughs> photos are i guess we would use the word historically inaccurate because yeah, they're, it's the they're, equivalent they're... of photoshopping isn't it yeah, like, i'm gonna go yes, i'm gonna absolutely. go and have a bath for once before i do this picture otherwise i'm never gonna yeah, get bath one. and shower very important um <laughs> 
so, so yes, uh, in, in long, long distance courtships that were not dissimilar to the rituals of today's internet dating, although of course much slower. The women who replied to these lonely hearts messages tend to be spirited and independent and might have found the men around them to be crushingly patriarchal. Their hopes might have been that the men on the frontier were less traditional, more adventurous, but whether the expectations of the parties were based in reality was something that could only be revealed when they met. Both parties were taking their chances, and as in all circumstances, uh, some of the marriages worked well and some didn't. The research into this most delicate of Victorian era scenarios uncovers a universal truth. We all want to love and be loved, and sometimes unusual circumstances require unusual measures. I have to add that I found the topic touchingly sweet and very human. Yeah, I mean, there is elements of this. To, I mean, uh, years and years ago, I used to work in media, but not the sexy part of media. I was dealing with horticulture, which is basically everything you grow that don't you don't eat, like could be turf, could be flowers. But I did occasionally look at for, for leads for like advertising leads in Farmers Weekly. So we're talking 1990. Oh, no. <laughs> and there was a Lonely Hearts co column in it. And, you know, because the Internet wasn't it didn't exist there. And, and it and it was basically exactly the same as this. It was really sincere men. And I always remember, because this one was passed around the office with much laughter, um, where basically the man's sole requirement about the woman was, and this is the 1990s, must have good teeth. <laughs> it's not asking for much, is no, it? No, no. I don't care about anything else about you, but I, you must know. I guess, I guess you could say that he is, of course, uh, um, body shaming, you know, for all the women out there with bad teeth, but with, I don't know, smoking hot bodies. But the teeth, the teeth yeah. is what counts. Yeah, the, the wokes would not like that, would they? I think the best one I've ever seen, it was one of those ones that gets screenshot and passed around all your friends, was um, I think he was a Pakistani guy. So I say this was much love because that's my heritage. But literally, his only requirements were that the woman be obedient and good at housework care what she looked like or anything I was like yeah I wonder how many answers he's going to get in Britain for that but should we move on to the modern era because go there's on, one I desperately want to ask you about go the on, Iceland on. worm monster <laughs> you're going to make me bloody pronounce it aren't you yeah <laughs> Uh, so um look well, while I again so I'm playing for a little bit of time here as I just sort of flick flick around but um yeah, so the, uh, what I wanted to say is, why is this called Slinkies and Snake Bombs? Because originally it was called uh, Forgotten History 2, um, but there is, um, uh, you know, so, but there is actually uh, a story about snake bombs. Hannibal, uh, you know, the, the great leader, the great general that everybody knows about with elephants, he also had literally pots of poisonous snakes that he used in a naval battle. So that's the snake bomb bit. And there, I do also the history of the slinky, literally that, that little... Uh, metal thing that the coil that you put down the stairs it's actually linked to two world wars and a religious cult it's a really really it's not two world wars two wars um and uh, yeah a, a religious cult it's it's really interesting but you are talking about the Lagerfjot war worm of iceland uh and and really what this is to Iceland is, I, I won't bother reading out, but, but this is to Iceland what the Loch Ness Monster is to Scotland or Bigfoot is to America. And it's one of these things where there's been lots of sightings. And as it points out in the, in the article, you can even look on YouTube for alleged video footage of this worm. Oh, but I'm, and I don't actually say this in the article, but the, the most compelling argument I've ever heard about why there can't be a Loch Ness monster is because if you go back a thousand years to the very first mentions of it, it's always a lone monster and no large organism is going to lodge or animal rather than tree is going to live for a thousand years. So, you know, if 
a thousand years ago, there was a forest of long necked uh, monsters, you know, in Loch Ness, then clearly they could have had baby monsters and so on and so forth. But the fact it's always been one lone monster implies people are clearly seeing something that they want to see or a shadow catches their eye or, or whatever, or there's a large fish underneath their boat. Um, and, but, you know, if you like the Lagerfljot uh, from uh, Iceland or, you know, Loch Ness or, you know, Bigfoot, I think it tells you something about human beings. We, we always want to believe in the weird and wonderful. And, and Alex, I know that you, you have thoughts on this and I certainly do too about, you know, there, there are, there's a group of people out there that every time they see an ancient monument, their assumption isn't humans can do it. It's always aliens. Alien yeah, usually if the other possibility is that a white man didn't build it. This is what we had. Yeah, that clearly, that couldn't have happened. No ethnic minority is capable of this. It must have been aliens. Yeah, but I mean, but saying that though, even white people have, uh, have sort of made this mistake about sort of like earlier civilization. The Anglo-Saxons uh, were talking about some some ruins. Um, you know, so this is only a few centuries, uh, you know, into the Anglo-Saxon era, and they were talking about these ruins had to be built by giants. We would call them Romans. So yeah. you, you know, it's yeah. It, 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 every time you see a mysterious thing, there's somebody out there that basically comes up with a legend, and and you know, I I think that tells us something about us not just the people of the past. Uh, something else that tells you about people is that um, sometimes they're very stupid. Pilates. Yes. Well, that's yes, a Greek that's word. Right. That must be really, really old, right? Say no. that again? Pilates must be really, really ah, yeah. old. Because <laughs> it's a Greek yes. word. That's another one possibly, of my favourites. possibly been invented in World War One, could it? No, no. But look, I, I'm, I'm completely honest in the book. Now, yeah. when you about it pilates is not a sort of like you know it, it is not a chinese word or, or something like that but i assumed pilates must have started about the same time as yoga or something like that yeah. but joseph pilates was basically a man who was interested in exercise uh born in the victorian era you know lived in the 20th century died i think 1960 off the top of my head um but yeah he uh, so he was a german in england during world war one uh, and he'd already come up with these ideas of sort of like basically using animal movements, natural sort of stretching and flexing to improve the human body. And he was in an internment camp in, in World War One. Now, this, this wasn't a place where people were being starved or beaten or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, but obviously they were being held against their will in the middle of a, of a world war. It wasn't good. At some point they were actually held in a castle, which is kind of cool. But he started doing this exercise with obviously minimal equipment around him. And the people who joined him were healthier by the time they left the internment camp and then they walked into the internment camp, which made him think I'm onto something here. And yeah, so it's one of these wonderful stories, which again, why is this not better known? Um, you know, yeah. I, I would argue that like, if this keeps you healthy in basically prison environments, then Pilates is, it's, it's very much seen as something for the girls, you know, let's get our yoga mats, our, our stretchy pants, and then uh, the stretchy sort of sweatpants, and then off we go. But I would say more guys would do Pilates as like, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you, if you're doing time, you could do this kind of thing. And, you know, I, I, being healthy is an important part of your life. I, I did Pilates once, and I just lay there thinking, this is not going to make me thin. <laughs> this is a crock. <laughs> One of the other... Uh, things. What's this one about the American flag on uniforms? Yeah, so I I was wondering. So when I was wa watching f footage about uh, footage of the Iraq War, it's like 
the, the American flag on their shoulders is the wrong way around. The, you know, basically, when you look at a normal American flag, the stars and stripes is sorry, the star, the, the white stars on the blue background is on the top left. Yep. They were on the top right on their shoulders and it was all black and green rather than red, white and blue. And it's like, well, what's going on here? And it turns out that somebody in the U.S. Um, military uh, really knew their history and was getting upset that basically it looked like Americans were running away. Because um, if you look at, um, you know, let's say pre-industrial wars, um, basically you'd have lines of soldiers and somebody would be the standard bearer. Somebody would stand there with the flag of your nation or your army or whatever. And in those days, they would make sure that the, the field, the blue field of, of stars would be next to the pole. So that as you were charging into the battle, holding the flag, you've got the stars front to the enemy, okay? It didn't look like the flag was running away. It looked like the flag was trying to get into battle. And so, um, and so that, that sort of like reversal of the flag was put on their shoulders. So again, it looked like this is America attack. I mean, this is such a tiny detail. Worry about like, you know, troop numbers and supply chain and disease. how to deal with the population. <laughs> yeah, disease, food, you know, these things are more important, but somebody thought about it. But so you've got modern day soldiers. Also, basically, uh, unless you're on military maneuvers and, and, and apart from World War II paratroopers, American soldiers just generally didn't wear the, the flag on their on their shoulders. That That's a very modern concept. Um, so yeah, so, so you've got a mixture of basically, you know, from revolutionary era to the, to, to the modern day, you've got um, also, the, the, and the reason why the colors were changed were for practical because red, white, and blue are terrible colors to be camouflaged in. So they just yeah. dulled down the colors. That makes sense. I've also noticed that British soldiers sometimes have the Union Jack, which again is basically black and green. Uh, so, you know, again, so you're not, you don't, you're not walking around with a big target on your chest, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, that was one where I, I was sitting there just watching the news going, there has to be a story behind this. And I fell down this rabbit warren going, that is a really minor detail that somebody's paid too much time and attention on. That's a proper historian rabbit hole, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's, you'll never get a book on that because there just isn't enough information on that. But yeah, it's good for a little article. I like it. Uh, right. OK, one more. You pick anyone from the book that you love. We've already done the three Dimitris, which I know is your. Yeah, favorite. I was going to say that that was my favorite. Um, I tell you what, let's let's do a woman again. Um, yeah. uh, uh, let's do Elizabeth Wilkinson, the Cockney bare knuckle boxer. Come on. That's a good one. Uh, so, yeah, women in the early 1700s were technically the property of their husbands. Uh, they had few rights and were meant to be placid little housewives and produce hordes of children. This perspective uh, uh, life was not for Elizabeth Wilkinson. There are a few undisputed facts about her later, by the way, Stokes, right down to whether Elizabeth Wilkinson was her real name or a stage name. Whatever the truth, she was a sensation during her boxing career in the 1720s. At first, she fought other women, but when she married the boxer James Stokes, the two of them fought mixed pairs of boxers. Like, like, like tennis, I, I like this, you know, you're just sort of like hacking at each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So, so yeah, so uh, perhaps those who uh, fist fight stay together. Her career lasted about six years at a time when it was clearly unusual for her sex to fight in the ring. Even so, she was seen in a, uh, in a positive light by the contemporary press. I find this encouraging, you know? The press isn't always staggeringly sexist, but and on this occasion, they're being the good guys, if you like. Uh, but it's not as if she didn't face discrimination and exploitation. Advertising for one of her events stated, they fight in cloth jackets, short petticoats, coming just below the knee, Holland drawers, white stockings and pumps. Why this list of clothing? Because prostitutes of the age would sometimes put on mock fights, bare-chested, to attract customers. The fact that Elizabeth and her opponents were fully clothed meant that they were genuine fighters and nothing else. And Georgian boxing was tough. Um, no rules uh, were uh, uh, no rules were changed or concessions made if the fighters were women. Uh, they were an unlimited number of rounds, and I do like this additional fact. Both kept going until one conceded or couldn't stand up in the so-called scratched square at the start of each round. Hence the term "not up to scratch." So basically, at the start of each round, you'd scratch out a square, you'd stand there posed, ready to go. But if you had just had enough, you wouldn't go into the square, the square that was literally scratched onto the ground. Hence not up to scratch, which we're still using 300 years later. Um, as, uh, as well as her boxing skills, Elizabeth had a reputation for brilliantly barbed put downs. Apparently her mouth was as vicious as her right hook. And this tactic of trash talking during the fight made her the 1700s answer to Muhammad Ali, who was also renowned for, for that kind of tactic. History does not record what happened to Elizabeth uh, once she retired from the ring. As with so many people of non-noble birth, there was no interest in her as a three-dimensional person, just a fixation on what made her unusual. There can be no doubt that this remarkable woman was ahead of her time. So it would be nice to think that she retired to a good life. But that is, of course, complete conjecture. But yeah, let's... Uh, it's nice to talk about a woman doing something unusual. Um, and actually, it isn't a sad story. This isn't a one where, you know, she was put down by the, you know, the, the press or the, the people at the time. And she yeah. could genuinely fill uh, an audit auditorium. People wanted to come and see her and recognized her skill. Um, and, and, you know, that I, I, I think it's very important to be as inclusive as possible. I mean, that, that's, you know, like I say, there's lots of women in this. There are lots of different cultures. This isn't just about Europe. Um, you know, I talk about the Aztecs, about ancient China, uh, uh, various um, sort of like uh, the, the first black Shakespearean actor in, in Britain. And he actually had a really good, good life. And um, so, yeah, I, I try and make things as inclusive as possible. Sadly, it isn't just Titanic sex Nazi Tudors. Uh, yes. Sorry, I got that. No. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it isn't just but You've those got things. three out of the four in there. I've got three out of the four there. And come on, do you not want to know more about slinkies and snake bombs in the first place? I, I definitely want to go back and read the snake bomb ones because I missed that. Um, yeah. Okay. Brilliant. This has been great. Remind everybody, the book is uh, Slinkies and Snake Bombs. We'll put it in our online bookstore so people can click through to buy it. Uh, congratulations. It's brilliant. I mean, the good and news it... is the name is Jem Duducu. That's J-E-M and the surname is D-U-D-U-C-U. -U. Yeah, it's a real mouthful. But the good news is all you have to do is type my name into something like Amazon and you'll get everything I've written because I'm not called John Smith. So yeah, Jem yeah. Duducu is a good way to just find everything I've done. There we go. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Alex. Thank you very much. And the podcast is amazing. And you guys put in so much work. You put in more, you put out more episodes than any other history podcast. So yeah, you guys are, are rock and roll stars. 
and insane, basically. Uh, a little bit. But yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're feeling particularly grateful, do hop over to our Patreon and lob us a couple of quid a month so that we can at least buy lots of alcohol to dull the pain of all the editing. <laughs> <laughs> when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.